thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics. Medicine. Nature. Or space. Time. The brain. Life. The universe. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist, the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine. With me, Chris Smith. And me, Adam Murphy. Coming up, the UK becomes the first Western country to approve a COVID vaccine, samples are successfully returned to Earth from an asteroid, and how an F1 driver walked away from what should have been a lethal 137 mile an hour crash. Also for World AIDS Day, we put HIV under the microscope and talk to someone who has actually been cured and the doctor who cured him. Hear how they did it. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. First this week, there was cause for celebration as a COVID vaccine became a regulator-approved reality in the UK. All the time we've been waiting and hoping for the day when the searchlights of science would pick out our invisible enemy and give us the power to stop that enemy from making us ill. And now the scientists have done it and they've used the virus itself to perform a kind of biological jujitsu. And in fact, because of that jujitsu, the UK has become the focus of world media attention as the first Western nation to formally approve a coronavirus vaccine for public use. Nevertheless, some are questioning why Britain's been able to move so fast. According to the UK Education Secretary Gavin Williamson, speaking to LBC, it's because we live in Great Britain. Well, I, I just reckon we've got the very best people in this country and we've obviously got the best medical regulators, much better than the French have, much better than the Belgians have, much better than the Americans have. That doesn't surprise me at all because we're a much better country than every single one of them. So, so, so. Hmm. OK, but if that is actually true, then what is it that we're better at? In reality, the buck stops with a body called the MHRA. They're the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, and it's down to them that we've been able to approve Pfizer's new coronavirus vaccine in record time. And to explain what's involved, what gaps still remain in our knowledge, and what is happening with the other major vaccine contender, the one being made by AstraZeneca, here's Gino Martini from the Royal Pharmaceutical Society. Any new medicine has to be uh, reviewed and, and obviously tested. The MHRA, their job is to inspect and review the data that's been generated. So all pharmaceutical companies have to do a period of testing, what we call clinical trials testing, what we call phase one, phase two, phase three, where effectively the the medicine, in this case the vaccine, is tested in human volunteers and subjects, which are representative of the the population of people you're, you're going to be giving the vaccine to. So you create these clinical trials. The data is collated and then the whole uh, data is then put together in a dossier and that's then reviewed by the MHRA. In this case, what's happened is that the MHRA have been working in real time with the manufacturers. 
and reviewing the data in real time. So that, that's why we've been able to get an accelerated review. Is it as simple as that? Because what some people, I think, quite legitimately are pointing out is that normally it takes 10 years to make a drug or a vaccine and get that to market, which means by the time it gets there, you've got 10 years, in some cases, of follow-up from the first time a person was exposed to that drug to the time at which you begin to market it. Here we've got 10 months, so we don't have that long-term insight. True, but what's happening here is that the MHRA will be actively reviewing people who have been vaccinated. So there's already a system called, it's called surveillance, and so they'll be monitoring people being vaccinated just in case there, there are any adverse events out there. The point we need to understand is the MHRA is a very, very good regulatory agency. We've got great expertise in looking at biological drugs such as vaccines and understanding what data is needed to ensure quality, uh, safety and, of course, efficacy. Interestingly, though, the MHRA have approved this agent for UK use, but the EMA, the European counterpart for the MHRA, have not approved this more broadly across the rest of the EU and other countries in the EU haven't done what the UK's done. So why have we got that difference? And if it's good enough for us, why is it not good enough for the rest of Europe? But these things do happen. I mean, differences do occur in, in interpretation with, with data, particularly when you have dossiers such as this. But again, I think what I alluded to before is the MHRA have, have had what we call a lead rapporteur, so that's a, a lead coordinator when they were part of the MEA for all these new drug applications. Like I said, 60% of new medicines, I think, over the last I know, 10 years or so, the MHRA were coordinating that. I've got a great experience in this kind of area and a great network of key opinion leaders and experts who can give counsel on this data. So, you know, I'm, I'm fairly confident that if the MHRA are happy with the safety and efficacy and quality, then I'll, I'll take the vaccine. There are some gaps in our understanding and in the data we've had generated so far, though, aren't there? For instance, no one under 18 has had the agent tried on them, so they won't be being vaccinated. Pregnant women Currently, they're regarded as a risk group, but they've not been included intentionally in the trials. They've been actually excluded from the trials. So how are we going to deal with the fact that there are these individuals or groups in, in the population that haven't been actively explored? As time evolves, they will obviously investigate those subjects. They'll be evolving the plan with the MHRA and finding how is, what's the best way to include those people. Now, what happened with AstraZeneca and where are they now in this whole situation? Because they described the fact that there appeared to have been this mix-up with dosing as serendipitous because actually it revealed that if you give a lower dose and then a higher dose, you, you might get a stronger response, 90% protection compared with, say, 60% with two higher dose hits. We're still trying to get to the bottom of that. Where does that leave them, though? Does this mean the regulator may say, well, I'm really sorry, the trial didn't go according to plan, it's back to square one, you've got to start again? What do you think is going to happen with them? A difficult question to answer. I, I think there will be dialogue between AstraZeneca and the MHRA, and they'll be looking at the data in its entirety and where the gaps are. And again, I think based on their experience, um, this is the MHRA, they'll make a judgment call, obviously working with AstraZeneca. So at the moment, it's hard for me to answer that question because that, that, that dialogue, those conversations are obviously happening. But ultimately, the MHRA will have to 
make sure that safety, quality, efficacy has been maintained. Once the vaccine goes into society and people start to receive it, what mechanism or instruments are in place to follow up to make sure, A, it it is working, and B, that the people that have had it and are getting it, they stay well, there are no long-term side effects, etc. How do we monitor the situation going forward? Typically, when something hits the market anyway, it's called phase four, and that's a period of what we call surveillance. Any adverse events is monitored by healthcare professionals, and they would launch what's called a yellow card system, where it's like a system that actually flags there's been an issue. But my understanding is the MHA have launched an active recall system and will ask uh, vaccinated individuals to monitor what happens. So there's going to be two mechanisms to keep a watching brief on those people who have been vaccinated. So hopefully we're all going to be in safe hands. That was Gino Martini. Now, though, artificial vision has made a great leap forward this week. The shapes of letters were directly transmitted into the brains of monkeys that were able to see and respond to them without actually looking at them for real. It means we're a step closer to developing ways to restore vision for some of the millions of people worldwide who have lost their sight. The team behind the breakthrough, who are based in the Netherlands, implanted a matrix of tiny electrodes into the region in the brain that decodes inputs from the eyes. Passing small currents into these electrons turns on the nerve cells nearby in the same way that signals from the retina in the eye would for real. This creates the impression of seeing spots of light resembling pixels, each of which corresponds to one active electrode. And by varying the pattern of electrodes that are turned on, you can change the pattern of spots that the animals are going to see. Katie Haler heard how it works from Peter Rolfsma. The implant is composed of 1,000 electrodes basically tiny wires. Through one of them, we pass electricity, electric current, and then you activate the nerve cells that are in a direct vicinity of the electrodes you're passing current through. If you stimulate one electrode, a person is going to see a dot of light. If you then stimulate a pattern of electrodes, you can uh, create a pattern of these dots of light, and that can then become a recognizable pattern, like a letter. And tell me a bit more about the experiments that you've done, because this is in macaque monkeys. After we implanted the 1,000 electrodes, in the first experiments, we stimulated one electrode at a time. And we basically found that for each electrode, the monkey detected it, and we trained the animal to make an eye movement to the location where he saw something. There is a very good correspondence to where we expected these artificial perceptions to emerge and uh, where the monkey made his eye movement. So if there was an electrode where we expected that the perception would be here, the monkey made an eye movement there. So we were able to create perceptions at many different positions. And then the trick is you can basically work with it like a matrix board along the highway. So if you turn on one bulb, you'll see a dot of light, but you can also create patterns. And that's what we did. So we created patterns by stimulating multiple electrodes at a time, for instance, in the shape of a particular letter, the letter A. And then we found that the monkey was able to recognize those letters. Do you know what these macaques actually see? Is it sort of all one color of light? Only indirectly, because you can't ask the monkey, hey, what did you see? Mm. (laughs) So therefore we have to do some tricks. So we trained the animals to recognize letters and say for the letter A, they would make, make an eye movement to the right. For the letter B, they would make an eye movement to the above and so on and so forth. 
then at some point we replace the letters by directly activating nerve cells in the visual cortex. And we're really excited that it worked. Then we know at least that the animals recognize these letters, but we can't ask them what do they look like. Now, one of our collaborators on, on, the, on the publication is Eduardo Fernandez. And last year, he also implanted a human with the same type of electrodes. And of course, then you can ask, what does it look like? She reported most often it looked like yellowish, whitish, a small dot of light. But sometimes it even has a small shape, like, uh, like a small edge. Do you need a sort of certain number of electrodes to make a pixel? Yeah, so every electrode becomes a pixel. And if you stimulate it, the person can also be a person who has been blind for several years. will see a single dot of light, like a pixel. And um, the number of pixels you create or can create is then equal to the number of electrodes that you can stimulate. So in this particular experiment, we had 1,000 electrodes, so we could create 1,000 pixels. Do you think we can get to the stage where you can get useful, discernible information for human beings? Basically a question of how many pixels you can produce. Hmm. The more pixels, the better. There have been uh, experiments in humans with only 60 pixels, for instance, in the eye. And that gives rise to slight vision. Of course, it's, it's not terrific. If you go to 1000, you can do recognition of letters, maybe a very simple reading task where you see only a few letters at any one time. You can recognize simple objects. If you then go to 10,000, you could probably uh, also navigate in, in the room, maybe even outside. So the more pixels you can produce, the better it will be. Now, the resolution of the human eye is, is 1 million. We are far from that. If the number of electrodes relates to the number of pixels, is, is there a point at which it kind of stops being practical? Yes, definitely. So 1,000 is, is feasible. As we think 10,000, maybe more, is still feasible. It also, of course, depends on the size of the electrodes. The electrodes that we're envisioning for the future are really, really tiny. And you can pack a lot of them on, on a single wire. And then it becomes uh, feasible to get thousands of electrodes into the brain. I think that that should be possible in the near future. And that is really amazing. Peter Robsema from the Netherlands Institute for Neuroscience. And the paper on that work has just been published in the journal Science. Critics everywhere are raving about the Naked Genetics podcast. I wish I could show you it. It's beautiful. This is really exciting. No, that is actually quite disgusting. Potentially a global phenomenon. I'm out of here and I'll be watching YouTube instead. Come on and join me, Phil Sansom, every month as we shrink down to microscopic size and understand the quirky code inside all living things. From the science behind the headlines. SARS and COVID have hijacked this essential protein and in the process wreaked havoc in the patient. To the obscure and unexpectedly fascinating. It's not overly pleasant to send a diver swimming through a massive plume of whale shark poo, but you've got to make these sacrifices for science. Subscribe to Naked Genetics on your podcast app today. And still to come here on The Naked Scientist, why, despite four decades of effort, have we still got no vaccine for HIV? For the first time, samples of rock from a distant asteroid were brought back to Earth. The recovery is part of a remarkable Japanese space agency mission called Hayabusa 2, whose goal is to discover the makeup of space rocks and match them to the meteorites that have fallen to Earth, as well as to reveal clues about the origins of Earth's water. 
Luke Daly from the University of Glasgow is one of the scientists who will be analysing the material of the asteroid. So, Luke, what asteroid is this actually from? The Hayabusa 2 mission uh, went and visited an asteroid called Ryugu. It's an object in our solar system known as a near-Earth asteroid, which means it's just in Earth's local neighbourhood. And it's about a kilometre in diameter and has a really interesting shape. It's kind of this spinning top diamond-like shape, which is, well, now we know it's pretty common, but it was unusual at the time when we first saw it. Why did we choose to go to this asteroid then? The asteroid Ryugu, there's kind of two reasons why we went there. The first is it's a near-Earth asteroid, and so it's easy to get to using sort of the rockets we have. Uh, and the second reason is it's a type of asteroid called a C-class asteroid. And what that essentially means is it's what we think about it and what it looks like is it looks like some of the most primitive objects in our solar system. It's chemistry and minerals and everything inside it probably formed in the first sort of two to three million years of solar system history. By studying this, we can get a window into the environment around the sun, literally as it first started to shine before there were planets or anything. And it's also what's known as a water-rich asteroid and an organic-rich asteroid. So quite a lot of it is made up of water and organic material. And essentially represents the building blocks you require for life as we know it to emerge. And how do you collect a sample from a spinning top orbiting halfway between Earth and Mars? Oh, so that's a kind of a really awesome feat of Japanese engineering. Uh, Essentially, what Hayabusa resembles is uh, a new, new new-like object from the Teletubbies. It has a large sort of chute that, as it descends onto the asteroid and touches very briefly the surface, it will then fire a tantalum bullet at the surface to kick up a load of dust. That dust then comes up the sample chute into the sample container, which then closes shut. And that's how you get a sample from uh, an asteroid. The Japanese did an amazing job, Uh, because not only did they do that once, they did it twice, and the second time they fired a copper bullet ahead of time, and that created the first artificial impact structure on an asteroid. And then they went and sampled the crater that they'd made. And that's really important because the first sample would have been stuff from the surface, and that's been exposed for thousands of years to dangerous radiation from the space environment, so from the solar wind, small impacts from micrometeorites and galactic cosmic rays, which these high energy particles emitted from the death of giant stars. And so some of that material might have been quite altered by those processes. The stuff in the crater won't have seen any of that. So the sample that we got from the crater will be truly pristine, truly representative of the environment around the sun four and a half billion years ago. That sounds really amazing. What are what are you going to be doing with this asteroid dust? What what kind of things will you be looking at? I'm part of this very big international effort, which is really fun to be a part of. Um, sort of hundreds of scientists from all around the globe. We're going to get three particles at Glasgow, uh, which will be about the width of a human hair, to give you an idea of scale. So really kind of small. And we're going to be tearing them apart one atom at a time using an instrument called an atom probe. In doing that, we're going to be able to figure out what each of those atoms are, like what elements, what's their chemistry, and where they were in the sample, generating an atomic-scale 3D model. One of the kind of key things we're hoping to see is to be able to figure out how much water these objects contain and the material that's brought back contains to essentially start getting into a really interesting science question that's been sort of 
bothering us for a long time in the planetary science community is where did Earth's oceans come from? So Earth should have formed in the inner solar system where water was in the vapor phase. That water would have been blown out into the outer solar system. And so Earth should have formed relatively dry. And these water-rich asteroids like Ryugu present the most likely mechanism for delivering water to the early Earth. The kind of thing we don't know for sure right now is how much water they have in them, because the meteorites that we have on Earth have been potentially altered by being on Earth and coming through the atmosphere. So Ryugu samples won't have that. And so we can get an idea about how much water is in there and what it looks like to see if it is indeed the close match to Earth's oceans and Earth's sort of organic composition that we think it is. And that will get us into some really interesting questions of did these asteroids impact the early Earth, giving us that primordial soup from which life can then emerge from? Brilliant. And I think we all really look forward to seeing what kind of stuff comes out of that. Luke Daly from the University of Glasgow, thank you very much. Now, science, technology and medicine came together this week in a very big way. I suppose you could say they collided and saved the life of a Formula One driver after he was caught in one of the worst accidents that the sport has seen in years. Phil Sansom reports how Roman Grosjean was able to walk away relatively uninjured from what should have been a lethal catastrophic crash. If you were watching the Bahrain Grand Prix the other day, you couldn't have missed the horrific accident that happened when Romain Grosjean's car careered off the track and smashed into a metal barrier. It pierced the car, cutting it in two and creating a huge fireball. Everyone assumed the worst. Which is why it's so incredible that Grosjean not only survived, but did so almost completely uninjured. That was a surprise because the accident looked really, really bad. That's Tony Purnell, formerly part of the FIA, the motorsport governing body, and before that, head of the Jaguar Formula One team. It was kind of a huge surprise to see a a car burst into a fireball. Really, you were surprised that there was an accident that bad in the first place? Oh, very much so, especially the car catching fire. It's not a lucky coincidence that Grosjean survived, because Formula One might be the most extensively safety-engineered sport in the world. I mean, it probably needs to be. You know, there's 750 kilograms of car going at between 1 and 200 miles an hour. The FIA has been constantly making improvements, and before they even start to look at the cars, they first work on the track. See, the most dangerous part for a driver is going around tight bends at high speeds. The centrifugal force, which of course isn't a real force, just the inertia of a car that doesn't really want to turn, can send it flying off to the side. So in the old days, there were barriers all the way around the circuits. But uh, nowadays, you'll notice that the outside of the corners, they have really substantial runoff areas with just tarmac. The tyres grip so well that you're better off scrubbing off speed than thumping into a barrier that's designed to give a little bit. Tough luck for Grosjean, though, because that's not where he came off the track. He was actually coming in the inside after a bend. So it was a very unusual accident. But as soon as his car hit the barrier, he was protected by the strength of his car's chassis. The cars are subject to a really severe crash impact test literally bolted to a platform and a a great slab of concrete on a pendulum swung into them. 
Now, he still could have hit his head on the barrier itself. After all, Formula One involves open-top cars. And given that he was going at 137 miles an hour, that's not a nice impact. But the bar didn't hit his head. It glanced off a feature that's only existed in Formula One cars since 2018, called the halo. It's quite simple, actually. It's a titanium bar that curves around the back of the driver's head and attaches to the car in several places. Which protects the driver primarily, actually, from um, front wheel breakages and um, other cars being lifted up into the driver's cockpit. The next life-threatening condition that Grosjean had to avoid was whiplash. After all, the black box in his car recorded a reverse acceleration of 53 Gs. What saved him was the extensive padding around him, Plus, his helmet, which is a a very strong composite material, comes with an attachment to his shoulders via something called the hands device, which protect the driver's neck. But Grosjean wasn't out of the clear just yet. There was, after all, a fireball, which engineers say is strange. The fuel tank is as extensively engineered as the rest of the car. The bag is literally bulletproof. And there are valving arrangements, so the fuel wouldn't spill out. It would cease flowing immediately. So they're still not quite sure what happened. But thanks to the driver's flame-resistant suit and to the medical team that got to him at lightning speed, he managed to get out of the wreckage before any damage was done. I believe the suit's good up to about 370 degrees centigrade. His gloves nowadays also contain sensors that are basically biometric scanners. There's also, I believe, an oxygen sensor in the gloves. Christ, he's engineered up the wazoo. Absolutely. I don't think his survival was fluke. I think it's a great tribute to a whole armory of small things which add up to the best example of um, a safety infrastructure there is in sport. And the innovations that happen thanks to Formula One often become the safety devices of future road cars. But don't go crashing into barriers at over 100 miles an hour just yet. Let's leave that one to the professionals. Wow, that is really such a remarkable story of survival. That was former Formula One team principal for Jaguar, Tony Purnell. And if you'd like to follow up on any of the stories that we've been covering this week, we transcribe all of the programmes and we also add the references. You can find those resources at nakedscientist.com slash podcasts. Meanwhile, very special thanks this week to Stephen, James, Rachel, Josh, Andrew, Peter, Bill, Rowett, Anders, Michael, Andy, Dean, Dwayne, Pete and John, all of whom signed up as donors this week to support us. Thank you very much indeed. This makes a massive difference to us here at The Naked Scientist. So please, if you enjoy this programme, do support us if you can. Go to nakedscientist.com forward slash donate. Every little helps, but if you can become a regular donor, we'd be especially grateful. Thank you. The Naked Scientist podcast is produced in association with Spitfire. Cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Now, the 1st of December was World AIDS Day, 
And so this week, we're going to take a look at HIV, the virus that causes AIDS, to find out what we've learned over the four decades since it was discovered, and also why we can make a COVID-19 vaccine in just 10 months, but not one for HIV. But first, a little quick roundup of what HIV and AIDS actually is. HIV stands for Human Immunodeficiency Virus. It's transmitted sexually and through contact with infected blood. When it gets into the body, HIV targets a specific white blood cell type called a CD4 T lymphocyte, and it inserts a copy of its genetic code into the DNA of those cells. It can hide like this in an inactive state for years, masked from the immune system, before firing up its genes to produce new HIV particles. In other instances, rather than remaining hidden, the virus replicates rapidly, making thousands of copies of itself and killing the cell in the process. These viruses then leave the cell and move around the bloodstream and other bodily fluids to infect other susceptible cells or other people. But, critically, when the virus copies itself, rather like a schoolboy making a shoddy job of copying down from the blackboard, HIV makes large numbers of mistakes when it copies its genetic code. These are called mutations, and they cause the virus to change its appearance and its structure. This presents a moving target to the immune system, making it extremely hard to control. And as a result, HIV causes a progressive, relentless destruction of the body's CD4 cell count. Now, without these cells, our ability to fight off other infections is compromised. And eventually, after about 10 years or so, even trivial illnesses can't be fought off and they can become life-threatening. When that happens, a person is said to have developed AIDS, the acquired immunodeficiency syndrome, and this is often when people die. So HIV is arguably one of the worst pandemics that we've ever encountered. So far, more than 32 million people have died, and right now about 40 million people are living with the infection. So what is the history of the virus? HIV was discovered by the Paris Pasteur Institute scientists Françoise Barry-Sanussi and Luc Montagné in 1983, but it had been circulating in humans for almost a century by then. But how do we know that, and where did HIV come from in the first place? To shed some light on this, from the Foundation for AIDS Research in New York, is Director of Research Rowena Johnston. So Rowena, what was the origin of HIV? Well, you know, HIV really is the story of the bad things that happen when a virus jumps from one species to another. In the case of HIV, there are chimpanzees that live in central West Africa, and they have a virus called simian immunodeficiency virus, obviously closely related to human immunodeficiency virus. And the most likely scenario is that back during the early and mid-20th century, there was a lot of building of infrastructure there in central West Africa, mainly railways. And there was a law that stated that workers on the railways had to be fed meat. So the Europeans in charge decided that the easiest way to accomplish that was to hunt chimpanzees, and I'm guessing they made the laborers do that. And in the course of butchering those animals, the chimpanzees, the blood uh, might have made its way into cuts into the laborers' hands, and so the virus was able to make that jump. And then how did it spread to be the epidemic and pandemic we know it as today? So we are talking about a colonial and upheaval-filled time uh, in history in Africa. So we have a lot of these workers who may have acquired the infection. There was probably a lot of forced movement of many people in the country. There was poverty, there was sex work, there were vaccination campaigns. Most likely needles were at least occasionally reused. And so there was probably some fairly dramatic spread of the virus for 
let's say a couple of decades, the 1920s through the 1940s and 50s, you have expansion of the roads and the railways. The virus was able to travel out in all directions from Central West Africa then. Certainly, it headed southwards towards South Africa, which we know has the highest concentration of HIV cases today. It made its way east and north through Africa. And then in the late 1950s and early 1960s, when, for example, the Belgian Congo was going through a really rough time uh, getting independence, um, the virus was able to spread across the oceans and it made its way to the Caribbean and from there to the United States. And then, you know, it gets a little bit more speculative. It's thought that it spread from the United States to Europe and Asia and Australia, although there were probably direct introductions from Africa to Asia as well. There's a close connection between South Africa and India. Um, but certainly we know that it was in the United States by the 1960s. And then how did we ultimately identify it in 1983? Well, by the early 80s, HIV had spread to enough people around the United States that doctors noted that there was a cluster of mysterious medical cases in Los Angeles and New York, and that those cases had some commonalities. And they decided to publish about that in 1981 in um, the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. It's a publication put out by the US CDC. And that's when we traditionally date the start of the HIV epidemic, even though we know it had been around quite a long time before that. But given the publication that allowed other doctors to identify that they also had similar cases, it took a few more years, as you noticed in your introduction, to, to identify the virus that causes what we now call AIDS. And a couple of years after that, to identify the first antiviral and, you know, really since the 80s and 90s, HIV has been incredibly interesting to scientists. It's, it's a relatively unusual virus, and it's an extraordinarily difficult virus. As you noted, it integrates into our DNA, which is quite unusual for a virus. But that, combined with a few other characteristics, means that HIV is not cleared by the immune system, but it's also extraordinarily difficult, really almost impossible, but not quite, um, to clear the virus from the body, or in other words, to cure it, which is what we at Amphire are aiming to do. Brilliant. And hopefully we will make tracks on that. Rowena Johnston, thanks very much. Now, when HIV was first discovered, bullish noises were made by researchers and politicians all over the world that there would inevitably be a vaccine along before too long. But, of course, that hasn't happened yet and we'll find out why later on in the programme. But the development of drugs to control the infection certainly has been a success story, and it's been possible to convert what would otherwise be a lethal infection into a treatable disease. The drugs in question are called antiretrovirals. So how do they work? Well, Ravi Gupta specialises in HIV at the University of Cambridge, and he's with us. So, Ravi, I thought what would be useful, if you could explain the life cycle that HIV goes through when it gets to a cell, gets inside that cell, grows in the cell and then comes out of the cell. Can you then explain how the different drugs work and what they're doing? Yes. So, as my colleague Rowena mentioned, the, the virus is an unusual virus, a retrovirus. And that means that it comes in with a genetic code that's actually um, made up of RNA. And what it needs to do is make DNA. And so what it does is it uses an enzyme called reverse transcriptase, which converts that RNA to DNA. And this is a key enzyme without which the virus can't survive. And one of the main classes of drugs that we treat uh, HIV with is, is, is a class called reverse transcriptase inhibitors. And these are drugs designed to block that enzyme. 
Now, after the virus has made DNA versions of its genetic material, the HIV genetic code, in fact, becomes part of our own genetic code in our white blood cells. And that's a process called integration. And that's another target of antiretroviral drugs. Once the virus has become part of your genetic material, it then undergoes what we call a reactivation event, where it starts generating uh, copies of itself, essentially. So once that process has started, you, you get protein units and then uh, and they need to be chopped up into the, into the relevant pieces in order for the virus to mature. So the, those proteins are generated as long chains. They need to be cleaved. That process is coordinated by a, uh, an enzyme that HIV encodes. It's called protease. This causes those chopping up events in order to uh, enable maturation of the virus. And, and that's a, a third very potent class of drugs labeled protease inhibitors. So those are three general drug classes that have been used to treat HIV that, that really follow the life cycle. And we tend to use them in combination. It's not like if I had meningitis and someone would give me the antibiotic best for treating that bacterium. When we treat HIV, we use combinations of these drugs all at once. That's called HART, isn't it? Highly active antiretroviral therapy. Why do we do that? Yes, this is an, a very, very important point, And it's one of the things that made HIV so hard to control for so long. Because this virus mutates so rapidly, as you mentioned earlier, and that's one of its survival strategies, it also generates large numbers of viruses very quickly. So you've got a huge number of virus replication events going on in the body at any one time. So if you imagine a drug going in there, depending on how potent the drugs are, there will always be a few viruses that have got mutations that escape that drug. And therefore, those viruses will survive and they'll carry on generating copies of themselves. And gradually that will take over the virus population. So we try and get around that by using more combinations of drugs so that at any one time we can block almost all mutants that are generated. And therefore, with combinations of drugs, the probability of a virus coming out with mutations to all two or three drugs is then uh, diminishingly small. And that's what gives you the chance of long term suppression of HIV replication. It's a bit like the Swiss cheese model, isn't it, where you've got holes in the Swiss cheese and you just put lots and lots of slices and the holes don't line up. So the chance of a virus floating through all three slices is very slim indeed. Why, though, if these drugs are so potent and so effective and people have unrecordable levels of virus in their body when they're on them, why are they not cured? This goes back to the idea of integration. So although we can reduce the numbers of new viruses coming out of cells, it's very difficult to destroy or remove those white blood cells that have been infected during the course of the infection because of this integration event that I mentioned earlier. Now, one of HIV's sort of genius strokes, you might say, is it preferentially targets what we call memory CD4 cells. And these are white blood cells that offer us lifelong protection from infections that we encounter during our lifetimes. And so these white blood cells are there to protect us over many decades and, and reactivate as soon as they see that pathogen again. And because HIV goes into these sorts of cells, this long lifespan enables HIV to essentially persist indefinitely. But there have been cures. OK, two of them, haven't there? What's happened in those people who've been cured of HIV? The reason that cure has been made possible is, is really due to the fact that chemotherapeutic drugs have the ability to destroy these uh, memory CD4 T cells that I've been talking about. And this knowledge of destruction of white blood cells is combined 
with a, another piece of knowledge that science brought us, which is that the protein CCR5, which is essential for HIV to cause infection of cells in the first place because it's a receptor on the surface of your cells, this protein is in fact absent in about 1% or less of Europeans. And if you have a dysfunctional or an absent CCR5, you're actually protected from actually being infected with HIV in the first place. So, And some doctors in Germany decided that they would aim to cure an individual. Uh, we, uh, the individual is now uh, termed the Berlin patient, Timothy Ray Brown. They aimed to replace the blood system with a system that was resistant infection with this CCR5 deletion. And combined with the chemotherapy or the, the regimen to ablate or remove the white blood cells from the patient to allow the new blood cells to come in. And that, that process probably destroyed a lot of the HIV or if not all in HIV infected cells, uh, thereby allowing you to replace the blood system with a resistant one and at the same time kill all the HIV infected cells in the body. And that's how we think the cure happened. Ravi Gupta, thank you. Sadly, the Berlin patient, Timothy Ray Brown, died this year after the cancer for which he received his curative stem cell transplant returned. But in the last few years, another person dubbed the London patient has been cured of HIV. His name is Adam Castillejo and he's with us now. So, Adam, first off, great name, I approve. And second, can you tell us about what actually happened to you? To become the London patient, my story began in 2003 when I was diagnosed with HIV. It was very dramatic at that time. And then by 2011, 2012, I was diagnosed with cancer. Very different sentence, what I always call it. It was very challenging both times. At that time, I struggled quite a lot until 2015. My chemotherapy regimes, unfortunately, were unsuccessful time after time. And my only choice it was to have a stem cell transplant. But the problem is, and I think it's important to people to understand, is it's very complex when you are an HIV person to able to go for a stem cell transplant. So I have the opportunity and I and always be eternally grateful for it by the team at Hammersmith and together with Professor Gupta to offer me the possibility to have a stem cell transplant for an unrelated donor in 2016. And for me, as I say, I, I won the lottery. I couldn't believe it. I will be able to cure all, not only for my cancer, not only my HIV. And that come out by 2017, I uh, will say, I decided um, together with Professor Gutta and my medical team to stop the retroviral medication, which Professor Gutter was explaining earlier, and how complex uh, this virus is. So I, by 2017, I stopped medication, and we took very cautiously the approach to wait, because I hear mentioned about my, as I call it, my big brother, Timothy Ray Brown, who sadly passed away this year. You know, we have to be cautious about early um, rebounds, as many happened before me, we were able to, by 12 months, we were able to say, oh, I think this is very promising. And it looked like it's not going to rebound. And by early 2019, we decided it was time to show the world is not only Timothy Brown, it can be replicated. In 2020, I decided to, to reveal my name, to share my story of hope. And it's, <laughs> it's such an incredible story. How are you? How are you doing now? I'm doing okay. I try my best to cope with 
as you know, it's a post-transplant life um, as well with the COVID-19. So you have to keep kind of extra cautious, extra careful about things and I keep, but I, I always remain keeping myself positive and thankful for what happened to me and, and try to help and try to keep, you know, the opportunity. I, I feel like being positive, helping me to, to cope with life. And I think that was one of my best tragedies today. And last time I'm keeping this way, keeping going that way. Brilliant. And it's, it's such a great story. Now, now, we've also still got Ravi Gupta, who was the doctor who treated Adam. So, Ravi, how do we know that Adam is actually cured? The answer to that is a difficult one, because his absence of HIV has only been determined by looking very deep into blood cells uh, for integrated HIV or even signs of HIV genetic material. All of our tests came back negative. But it was interesting. After some exploration, we did find fossils of HIV genetic material. The material wasn't uh, capable of making new viruses. It was little fragments. Uh, That's not unexpected, in fact. And it was also found with the Berlin patient. So we used very sensitive methods, both in blood and in tissues, to explore the possibility that there there was HIV left behind. But as I said, we couldn't find any evidence that there was any virus capable of making new copies of itself. And then is this something that could be rolled out on a wider scale? Of course, the big problem here is, number one, that the two cures we've described required uh, chemotherapeutic regimens in order to destroy HIV-infected cells. And so those drugs come with side effects and they make you uh, vulnerable to opportunistic infections. So there is a risk attached to them. The second problem, of course, is you have to find a tissue match, a donor who has the CCR5 deletion. And that's the second problem because, of course, as I said, it's very rare and it's only in Northern Europeans in general. So there are two major barriers to this, the safety of using chemotherapeutic drugs and transplant, and secondly, the donor matching. So what we believe is that this is proof of principle that really we can cure patients. And that was a really important thing because the Berlin patient happened and for 10 years we we were not able to replicate it. So the good news is that this is a real thing. The next step is finding ways to get there safely. And CCR5 gene therapy is one avenue that started being explored to modify CCR5 in uh, individuals who have HIV in order to explore whether that can help uh, elicit or induce uh, remission and cure. Ravi Gupta, thank you so much. And before him, Adam Castillejo, thank you as well. This week, we are considering the story of HIV. In case it has managed to escape your notice, we are living in a pandemic and we've gone from knowing nothing whatsoever about COVID-19 to having a vaccine against it in under a year. But we've been much less lucky with HIV. Decades on, there's still no vaccine. Why is that? Well, Anna Maria Giretti is from the University of Liverpool and she's with us hopefully to shed some light. So do you think, Anna Maria, that actually a vaccine is even theoretically possible given four decades of fruitless effort so far? Yes, indeed. I think that uh, we have been disappointed. I believe the first vaccine study was done in 1986. I mean, it's been quite a long time and perhaps there have been 250 studies that have given us disappointing results. So is it possible? We continue to believe it is. Is it needed? I think we should perhaps remember that in 2019 alone, there were about 1.7 million new infections in the world. And if we really want to be successful in limiting the number of new infections, we need to develop an effective vaccine. 
is it biologically plausible? Is it possible to achieve a vaccine? Well, certainly through these three decades and more of uh, studies, we have learned a lot about HIV, the biology, how the body responds to the infection. And yes, we've had setbacks, but we've also had some breakthroughs. I think that we mentioned, for example, how difficult it is to control the virus because the virus continues to change and escapes body responses, the immune responses. There are also other mechanisms that the virus uses to evade the control. And a major breakthrough, I would say, has been the understanding of the fact that the, the virus uses sort of a decoy. It triggers the um, immune system in chasing after the wrong type of parts of the virus, protecting away the true vulnerable part of the virus. And this has been a recent, relatively recent understanding that gives us hope that we may be able to really uh, direct immune responses towards the right part of the virus, the right antigen, the right component of the virus, and that is the vulnerable part of the virus. So we discovered these responses as being broadly effective against, against the virus. Are there sort of any bits of evidence you can point to that would reassure us that it is possible to make an immune response against the business end of the virus so that even despite its best efforts to decoy our immune system in the way you've just been describing, we can nail it nonetheless? Well, I think it's important to to remember that we have some individuals that are exposed to HIV but not infected. And we've also gained a lot of understanding about the interaction between the virus and the immune system from studying people that are called elite controllers. These are people that are infected with HIV, so they have a, uh, you know, evidence of the infection. However, they do not uh, show progression of the disease. Somehow they found a way of keeping the virus at bay, keeping the virus under control, and that is uh, without the need for HIV treatment, without the need for antiviral therapy. And, and how common is so that, Anna Maria? How many of those people are there? There aren't that many. <laughs> they are um, a handful in each centre and indeed it's not a common occurrence. But we have learned a lot from studying this, uh, these patient populations. And also, as I said, we, we also learned that some people can make really very effective antibody responses, what we call broadly neutralising antibody responses. So responses that actually are directed against the vulnerable parts of the virus. So I suppose your strategy would be, well, let's study these people that rare as they are, do appear to have an ability to control the virus. And then if we can work out what has happened in them, we can make the same thing happen in people who otherwise wouldn't be so fortunate. So we basically got to build some kind of vaccine capable of making the normal person's immune response behave like one of these so-called elite controllers that you were just talking about. Indeed, that is one strategy. And it's also effective to think about uh, new ways of presenting the proteins of the virus, the antigen of the virus to the immune system, new ways that may induce a response which is even better than what can be generated spontaneously in people that perhaps are elite controllers, so spontaneously manage to control the infection. It is plausible, scientifically plausible, that we may find a way of presenting the virus protein in a way that is better than what happens during natural infection. And I suppose that that's really what we would love to be able to achieve in HIV. It's strange, though, isn't it, that we have managed to put so much effort over so many years into this and it has sidestepped us at every turn? 
Yes, it's been disappointing. However, I will say there have been some obstacles. There have also been cases when perhaps the scientific world was distracted or perhaps was focusing on the wrong aspects of the virus, the wrong trying to induce the wrong type of immune responses, or perhaps pursuing ways of developing the vaccine that were not the most successful. Uh, we've had a number of setbacks that were significant. But I would say that we also have now a, a new opportunity. I, I would like to think that the, the COVID-19 pandemic and the success of the development of the vaccine, particularly with the, this new technology, for example, of the RNA-based vaccines, I think it will generate a renewed enthusiasm for the development of HIV vaccine because it, it really shows how if you combine efforts, you know, academic uh, efforts, uh, efforts from pharma, interaction with regulators. So this, this combined focus and investment uh, into trying to develop a COVID-19 vaccine has paid off and the use of new platforms has paid off, as indeed shown that it's possible to induce huh. responses which are better than natural infection. Anna-Maria Giretti, thank you very much for, for joining us. So this week we've learned where the AIDS pandemic originated, how an understanding of the biology of the virus has delivered us effective drugs and even a cure for the disease. But let's hope a vaccine isn't too much further off into the future because, of course, prevention is always better than cure. Thanks also to Ravi Gupta, Adam Castileo and Rowena Johnston. And finally, we've just got time for Question of the Week and Phil Sansom has been digging up an answer to this question from Robert. Does household composting release fewer greenhouse gases compared to a landfill? If I've got climate change on the brain, as I probably should, then should I be composting my food waste? Environmental engineer Sintana Vergara from Humboldt State University says, Yes, even if you are a novice composter and have a great landfill nearby. The basic idea is that landfills are anaerobic systems. They are environments without oxygen. Without oxygen, the microbes digesting organic matter, such as food waste, will release methane. And methane is a very powerful greenhouse gas. Composting, on the other hand, is an aerobic process. And when microbes break down organic matter in the presence of oxygen, they release carbon dioxide, CO2, rather than methane. While CO2 is also a greenhouse gas, methane is a much more potent one, trapping about 30 times more heat than carbon dioxide. Bear in mind that your banana peels will degrade more slowly in a landfill relative to a compost pile, so the emissions are going to be spread over time rather than coming in one short puff. But this doesn't change the bigger factor that Sintana describes, which is that the methane coming from the landfill is much worse than the carbon dioxide from the compost. Now let's get to the numbers. We're going to be very conservative here and assume a very good landfill and assume that we're average composters. Based on the United States Environmental Protection Agency's WARM model, which stands for Waste Reduction Model, a free online mathematical tool for exactly these kind of calculations. And assuming a top-of-the-line landfill in which landfill gas is captured and used to generate electricity, one ton of food waste deposited there will emit about 470 kilograms of CO2 equivalents. Let's compare this with the direct measurement of actual home composting systems from a study published by Anderson et al. in 2010. They measured that an average of 160 kilograms of CO2 equivalent per ton of waste was emitted from home composting systems. That means that food waste thrown in a landfill will emit about three times more carbon than that same waste would if it were composted. 
And here we're assuming a best case landfill and a not best case composting system. And we're not counting any additional carbon benefits from composting, such as enhanced carbon sequestration when that compost is applied to soil. So, composting is definitely better than landfilling, even under conservative assumptions. Composting would look even better if the home composting is done well, and if the resulting compost is used to grow plants, which sequester carbon in the soil. And plus, as RD pointed out on the forum, no emissions from vehicles transporting your waste if you're composting at home. Thanks to Sintana Vergara. Next time, a question about the birds and the bees from listener Jordan. Why do females produce eggs inside the body at body temperature, but males have to produce sperm outside the body at a lower temperature? So what do you think? You can email chris at thenakedscientists.com or join in the debate on the forum, thenakedscientists.com slash forum. And if you've got a question of your own, you can send that in by email or there's a simple web form on our site at thenakedscientists.com slash question. And there we have to leave it for this week. Thanks to Adam who put the programme together and do be sure to join us at the same time next week when we're going to be celebrating the 250th birthday of the great Ludwig van Beethoven. He was a major technical innovator and also an influencer in his time. What is today's technology telling us, though, about his music? And are computers nowadays powerful enough to take the same creative steps that he once did? Join us next week to find out. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.